When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to Working, the podcast about what people do all day. I'm Jacob Brogan. In past seasons of Working, we've talked to people in Baltimore and Detroit about their jobs. But for the next few episodes... We'll be taking you to a more imaginary destination, Gotham City. We're sitting down with the writer and artists behind the comic book Batman to learn a little bit about how their stories of the Dark Knight come together from concept to execution. Don't worry if you're not a comic book fan. These are stories about the intersection of creativity and collaboration, and we're really excited to share them with you. For the first episode of our series, we spoke with the Eisner Award-winning Tom King, who writes Batman uh, along with a bunch of other great comics. He recently penned a story where Batman proposed to Catwoman, and we'll be focusing a bit on that sequence. Uh, King has always been a comic book nerd, but before he became a professional writer, he spent years in the Central Intelligence Agency recruiting spies in Iraq. He tells us a little about that, but he's mostly going to lead us through his writing process, sharing how he plans out a script, how he tailors his uh, descriptions and, and the other elements of his writing to the inclinations of the artists that he's working with, and what it's like to review art as an issue comes together. And of course, he also explores the challenge of trying to do something new when you're writing the adventures of a character with an almost 80-year history. Then, in a Slate Plus Extra, we let some Slate staffers ask King their most pressing questions about Batman himself. If you're a member, enjoy bonus segments and interview transcripts from working, plus other great podcast exclusives. Start your free trial at slate.com slash working plus. What is your name and what do you do? Uh, my name is Tom King and I am a comic book writer. Do you tell us about the comic books that you write? <laughs> what, 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 what kind of comic book writer are you? Uh, I should say I'm an Eisner-winning comic book writer. I just won two Eisners a week ago. So for named, award named for Will Eisner, who's Will one of the one of the greats of the uh, of the medium. Yeah, it's like the Nerd Academy Awards. So. Yeah, it's a good award. Congratulations. Yeah, no, I'm on my way to an EGOT. <laughs> <laughs> Hilarious. Um, I write uh, Batman for DC Comics, and I'm known for the Vision for Marvel Comics. And I also wrote a book called Omega Man and a book called The Sheriff of Babylon for Vertigo Comics. Um, let's let's take a step back. I mean, we're we're going to talk today about Batman. This is the first episode in a series about how Batman gets made. Um, but uh, before we get to that, um, I mean, you haven't always been a comic books writer. Uh, I think it's fair to say uh, <laughs> you had a life before this. Uh, what did you 
do before you're made, you made your way into the comic books world? I took a very bizarre route. Uh, so coming out of college, uh, I'd interned in, in Marvel and DC in college. I was a super nerd growing up. Uh, I was one of those guys who couldn't uh, throw a ball in a hoop or run using my legs. And so like I had trouble making friends. Very typical, like stereotypical nerd. And I just read comics to sort of escape from all that uh-huh. alienation and, you know, all that stuff. Uh, and so I wanted to be a comic writer and I graduated from college in 2000 and the industry had collapsed. Marvel went bankrupt mm-hmm. famously. And uh, so I went to do my second thing when I had a nice Jewish mother who sort of said, you know, be a lawyer or a doctor. Don't be a comic writer. So I was like, I'll be a lawyer because math is hard. I went, uh, I worked for the Justice Department in a little program that helped cancer victims. And then 9-11 happened. And like a, a million other people, I tried to do what I could. And then I joined the CIA. Mm-hmm. So that's okay. the weird part. <laughs> and So you joined in, in 2001, you joined the CIA? In 2001, I joined the CIA, yeah. Uh, it takes about a year to get your clearance, so think of it as no, uh, fall of 2002. Where did that take you? Uh, so I I thought I was, you know, I was a nerd. I hadn't done anything. I literally remember being in my first interview and I was sitting next to like a, a guy who had a PhD in eight languages. And <laughs> the other side was like a special forces dude. And they were like, oh, this, this like guy knows about that. Batman. <laughs> yeah, <he> totally does. <laughs> I thought like I was good with information. That's what comics are. It's just uh, information and understanding a world. It's like I'll be like, one of those connect the dot kind of guys. But I just sort of made my way through the process, whatever psychological profile, it sort of became um, clear that I should be what they call a case officer and operations officer, which are the guys who go overseas and try to recruit spies. Um, and I was I was counterterrorism focused because that was the whole mm-hmm. point of joining after 9-11. So I did counterterrorism work overseas, and I served uh, in Iraq and sort of the Afghan pack theater. That, I, I know, informed some of your work really directly. The Sheriff of Babylon, a book we mentioned briefly earlier, is a uh, it takes place in, in Iraq in 2004, 2005, something like this. Yep. Oh, yeah. It, it informs all of them. I mean, I can't talk about it directly. You, sure. you already see me hesitating because it's yeah. all um, super security protected and all that stuff. But does that intelligence work inform the way you approach comics writing? Oh, yeah, every day. I mean, I'm lucky that I actually, you know, in my 20s, I sort of did something crazy and I can sort of draw on that mm-hmm. as a writer. And, you know, um, you know, having gone through that sort of, and, and I, I come from a generation that, you know, we're 15 years into this conflict. And so this sort of generation of kids who went off and did this and came back and tried to make their lives out of it. I'm part of that. And I try to sort of capture that in my writing. Mm-hmm. How did you then make your way into comics, back into comics since since it had been a passion to begin with? Uh, uh, so I was, I really loved that job. I'm, I'm so proud of what I had done um, in the CIA. But it sort of came to the point my, uh, I'd spent a lot of time away from my wife when we got married. I proposed to her uh, the week before I left for Iraq. And uh, and she was pregnant. She had a, she, We were having a kid. And I sort of had this realization that I couldn't be the CIA officer I wanted to be and the father I wanted to be. Uh, I had grown up without a dad, and I kind of didn't want to repeat that for mm-hmm. my own kids. Uh, I mean, some people can do it. Some people can do the balance. I just personally could not mm-hmm. because I just – to be a great CIA officer, I wanted to be 24-hour committed, and I couldn't do that with having a kid. So I – and I was like, well, what else do I love that I want to do? I'm, I'm at sort of that turning point in your life. I was like, I love comics. I wanted to be a comic book writer. So I took a year off and I wrote a novel at night about superheroes. Uh, I became Mr. Mom. I went from being <laughs> CIA officer literally in a weekend. On Friday, I left. Monday, I took over. Um, my, my wife went back to work. She's a lawyer. And we – and I've changed diapers and, you know, uh, lived among the nannies in my neighborhood <laughs> And pushed a stroller for two years, and I wrote at night. I wrote a. You live in Washington D.C. Yeah, I live in Washington D.C. Here, yeah. And at night, I wrote a novel between uh, 
very strict between midnight and three in the morning every day. Wow. Five days a week. And I was lucky I got an agent, got published by Simon Schuster, and then I was a writer. Uh, so you, you wrote this novel, you published it. Yes. Uh, are you, you're now writing a different kind of fiction. <laughs> um, I mean, well, my novel was a huge flop. You have to, okay. you have to keep that in mind. That they, they pay me very nice money for it, and, and Simon Schuster released it, and then nobody read it. It's called A Once Crowded Sky. Uh-huh. You can buy it for a penny, I'm sure, somewhere out there. Please pay as little as possible <laughs> for it. Please pay as much for Tom's book as possible. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> I'll never get to the royalty mark, so, Fair. Not, so it's okay. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so it was. It was. It was. Uh, I, I'm a proud of the book. It's very ambitious and nerdy, but nobody bought it. And so then I was sort of stuck out there, where you're like, I'm halfway. I, th- I was like, Oh, I'm a writer now. I'm a great. I remember I was. I was a best-selling author for like three hours. <laughs> like the AV Club had written a, a review of. Uh, don't read the AV Club. Read Slate. But <laughs> <laughs> AV Club's okay. Too. Okay, they're okay. Good. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> The AV Club had written a review where like, this is the next Watchmen. And I, and I watched on Amazon. I watched on Amazon because Amazon, if you're a stupid, obsessed author, which all authors are stupid, obsessed authors, you can watch what how big your book is and how many uh-huh. people are. And I watched it sort of go up and up and up and up the ladder. I was like, yes, this is happening. <laughs> and then I watched it sort of crest and go down and down and down. And it never it never recovered. It was the one bump. Uh, so then you're like, okay, well, I'm sort of a writer because I got paid once and I have a novel and it's in bookstores. Something. But I still am not have enough money to sort of support my family. And uh, selling a first book is really hard. Selling a second book after a first book failed is even harder. Okay. Because the publisher's like, the first time they're like, wow, you could be the next big thing. <laughs> and then you're like, oh, you're not the next big thing. What were we thinking? Yeah. Uh, so I, I wrote a novel, tried to sell it. It didn't sell. And uh, then I sort of went and uh, I've written superhero books. I knew how to do superheroes. And, and this first novel was about superheroes. It was about superheroes, yeah. It was about a bunch of superheroes who all lose their powers. It was just like mm-hmm. an easy metaphor. And uh, I, so I sent my book into every editor at every comic book place I could find, and I uh, was ignored by you know, hundreds of editors. And one nice editor named uh, Karen Berger, who was the founder of Vertigo Comics, who discovered people like Neil Gaiman yeah. and um, Alan Moore and Grant Morrison. These are nerd names, but, if but you know them. a legendary editor is really yeah. responsible. Shaped uh, comics, the mainstream comics, especially. Yeah, as we know them now, sort of brought took the energy of mainstream comics and turned that into an adult medium, basically, mm-hmm. in the 80s. A lot of literary ambition in, yeah. in the work. Uh, she, she, she took me off a pile and came up to me at a comic convention. I used to go to these comic conventions and try to hand sell my books, anything to sort of drive up these sales. I did this for years. And you'd go with piles of books. And you'd, you know, I gave out free magnets. People come up to me and say, hey, we want a magnet. Can I interest you in this book? It's like selling a used car. It's horrible. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And uh, she came up to me one of these conventions, asked me to pitch her something, pitch her a series. I was like, oh, my God, this is my big tamp, my big chance. And I pitched it, and it just fell out like it's – I don't know if you've ever pitched a story or an idea to someone. You can just see it on their face that they're hating it as you're saying it. It was one of those experiences. It was just blah. And she's, I think, probably more out of pity than anything else. was like, okay, here's an assistant editor. You can do a little eight-page story. <laughs> it was probably just because she was embarrassed and wanted to get out of the conversation. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> and – I, I did the eight-page story, and uh, and the, the whole career took off from there. Uh, what was that story about? <laughs> it, it was it was in a little anthology called Time Warp. I still like the story. It was a story of because it had to be a time travel story. So it was a story of the old thing: would you go back and kill Hitler? And it was a story of if someone had answered yes to that and gone back and killed Hitler, it was that. But it was told from the sister's point of view. Hitler Hitler has a had a sister, and it was just like, what if you were a random little girl and you know you were five and your brother was 
eight and, and, a, <laughs> and a time traveler came and shot him in the head and disappeared. <laughs> and then you would go through. And, and so in the background, of course, history kept getting better, but her life kept getting more and more miserable because she couldn't explore. So it was this dichotomy between these, this sort of the world finding its own utopia while her world sort of fell in hell. And sort of, she's like sort of suffering for our sins kind of thing. That's, I'm going to track that down. Yeah, that's good. Uh, how did you end up on, on, on Batman? I mean, I assume it wasn't like the – what, what year was this when you, when you published this, this story? That would be 2013, 14, around there. Okay. And now it's 2017. So yeah. <laughs> I was quick. I your was career quick. took off pretty quickly. Yeah. That uh, was nice. How did you make your way to Batman? What's, what's the arc there? So I had proposed, I was pitching. So once the eight-page story went well, they're like, okay, pitch a series again and actually take some time for maybe come up with something good. And I pitched a series um, that's now, years later, um, like in the process of being turned into a television show. But I pitched it. And uh, it got past Vertigo, which is sort of an imprint of DC Comics, and got up to the head of DC Comics. And like, who the hell is Tom King? No. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I pitched a second series. At that point, I was, again, desperate. Because, again, I was kind of a working writer, but kind of not. Uh, still changing diapers. And I was like, okay. I didn't ever want to write about um, the war because I just felt it was cheap. It was kind of a... I don't know, a violation. Also, I just didn't want to revisit it. Like, when I didn't want to just have the war in my head for so long. But I knew, like, that was the one thing about me that people would always be sort of attracted to. So it was kind of, it was a very sellout sort of moment where I was like, okay, I'm going to pitch something that's about the war. When you say the war, you mean in Iraq? Yeah, in Iraq, yeah. yeah. So I pitched Sheriff of Babylon as a series. Uh, it was called Sheriff of Baghdad originally. And I pitched it to both my literary editor and to Vertigo Comics, and they both said yes. Hmm. Uh so I started work on the novel, and uh, the Vertigo process went through, and the same thing happened where it was like, oh, this is brilliant. We want to, we want to publish this. This is going to be great. And then it got to the head of DC Comics, like, who the hell is Tom King? <laughs> and threw it out. And in the meantime, I wrote the whole novel. and, uh, so and your, then I, your third novel at this point. My third novel, yeah. my third. And, of course, there's the unpublished novel every novelist writes before the first one. Right. So this is the fourth novel Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, which, oh, my God, they're so horrible. Some, <laughs> there's some good moments in it. And then I got lucky. Uh, it's 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 uh, it's good to be good. It's better to be lucky. My editor, who was helping me with all this stuff, got promoted to be head of the Batman office. Mm. Uh, Mark Doyle, a brilliant guy, and he said, "Okay, I finally have the power to hire you on something where the head of DC can't 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 do you." And so he hired me in this little book called Grayson, which was a spy show about Robin when he grows up to mm. Grayson, uh, a spy comic book. And I, you know, been the in the CIA, so it was kind of thing. And he matched me with a writer, so I was co-writing it, mm-hmm. a guy named Tim Seeley, uh, who had been writing comics for 10 years and taught me everything. And uh, the two of us went off running into this Grayson series. Mm-hmm. And that was my first sort of superhero So you were, you were operating kind of in the Batman playing field now, so we're, we're, yeah. we're trending toward... We're getting, we're getting we're, closer we're getting to, to Batman. You're... Yeah. <laughs> so then I, was, yeah, then I was writing the Batman sidekick character. And I was writing very weird scripts. I wrote my first script backwards, and I was, I was trying to use all these... You know, you, you, when you say backwards, you mean the story was the story went backwards. Yeah, yeah, it's like a memento kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I was using, you know, I was I'm super influenced by Alan Moore and Frank Miller. If anyone's nerdy enough to know those names, I think probably some of our audiences. <laughs> <laughs> and I was trying, I was basically stealing all of their stuff as I could, which is the best way to start writing is to steal. And uh, and it got noticed. It got it, it got attention, and sort of it it rose it rose me up enough that I got. Uh, the offer of Vision, that was the big game changer of Vision. And this was a book for Marvel. That's this about a book for Marvel, yeah. Android played by Paul Bettany in the, <laughs> yeah. in the, the films That's who right. <laughs> moves to Arlington, Virginia, and uh, things go weird for his life. Yeah, so I, I, I pitched Vision as 
uh, you know, they, they asked me there, they, they came and they said, okay, we want you to work on a new Marvel series. And I was like, oh my God, it's going to be another spy thing. I was so sick of sort of being like, you're in a box, you're the spy guy. And it was Vision, it was, a, it was an Android. And um, and I, I, I thought about it for what, what can you do with, with an Android that's interesting? And I was like, oh, I'll, uh, I'll give him a wife. I was like, oh, that's, that's just uh, Bride of Frankenstein has been done. I was like, how about a wife and kids? <laughs> I was like, he makes his own wife and kids. So that's kind of messed up. And once you get to the point where you're like kind of messed up, then you have a good pitch. Yeah. So I pitched that, and, and, and I wrote it, and I had, I had been reading this side series, Omega Man, which I got canceled. And I sort of had this feeling that everything would go wrong and so eventually canceled. So it was in one of those places where it's a character nobody cares about, and you think you're going to get canceled, so you take a big risk. So I told it in this sort of weird way, and it got a lot of attention and sort of a lot of praise, and that's when people said, oh, this guy can really write. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's what I won the Eisner for was for that Vision series. That's yeah. sort of been the, the gem of my career. It's a terrific book. Um, and, and then at this point, You've written now something like thirty issues of Batman. Yeah, and it, that comes out twice a month. Is comes right? out twice a month. Yeah. So then, then they decided they're, they're gonna be, they'd have the same. Batman had had one writer, Grant Morrison, for five years, who's a famous writer. Then it had another writer for five years, which is Scott Snyder, another famous writer. And when Scott was finally leaving the book, and they needed sort of a new person, and so they had in their possession, they had a guy who had written Dick Grayson, so he knew the Bat Universe and had done a big high praise book, The Vision. So I was sort of Tom, do you want this book? Did they just yeah. offer it to you, or did you have to? pitch your take on Batman to them? No, they offered... I was in the really lucky position at that time where my star was rising and my... my I didn't... I wasn't, I wasn't under contract. So Marvel and DC were both coming at me at the same time, mm. uh, which are the two big comic book companies. So it, it, it's kind of like being a baseball player with uh, two, uh, two teams interested in you. Mm-hmm. So I was it, was, it was... it was sort of a very nice position where they sort of came to me and they're like, here, this is the offer to get you to stay. Mm-hmm. Uh... You you mentioned that you you find yourself kind of imitating and, and referring back to uh, Alan Moore, who's famous for a Batman story called The Killing Joke, uh, among other things. I mean, among many other things, Watchmen, which you yeah. also mentioned earlier, and uh, a lot of other books. Uh, and and Frank Miller, who whose Dark Knight Returns uh, in the mid '80s was was really one of the sort of seminal touchstones of uh, comics becoming what we recognize them to be now, mainstream comics, kind of breaking through into the popular. Uh, consciousness. Um, this is a character with an almost eighty-year history. Did you have to dig into that backlog of of all of these stories? The the kind of bizarre detective stuff from the from the forties, the campier stuff from the from the sixties, the the more grim and gritty stuff of the eighties. Uh, what was your what kind of research did you do as you were starting to write <laughs> this book? I guess that's what I'm trying to ask. Yeah, I mean, that's the problem with coming to Batman or coming to any other character. Uh, Mark Wade, uh, another comic book writer who's sort of the famous, like the biggest nerd in comics. He's like the guy you want to take to a trivia contest. <laughs> we had dinner and, and he sat down and he said, you know something about Batman on those, uh, that people are scared of? I was like, what, what is it? He's, he's like, no, there's no character in fiction that has had more written about him than Batman. And I, don't, I was like, that's, like, that's impossible. He's like, no, I'm thinking about like Sherlock Holmes, Superman. Like, like, he's had the most sort of fictional presence of anyone in terms of stories in every single medium you can think of. Mm-hmm. And then they're like, well, what about, you know, Jesus and all that? Not that he's a fictional character, but possibly. Uh, and then he's like, even then there's like some competition. Like Batman's just everywhere. Like every story, every aspect of him has been explored. And mm-hmm. that's just such an intimidating place to start from. Yeah. Uh, and I think in my first Batmans, I was intimidated by that. And of course, I had been a nerd growing up. So I sort of knew the basics and I had read the stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I went back and read sort of the great the great Batman runs. I read... Um, the, the Marshall Rogers run. I read the beginning, the Bob Kane, Bill Fingers stuff. 
I went back and read the Frank Miller stuff and the Jim Aparo stuff. I read like sort of my favorites, mm-hmm. the highlights. Uh, and I actually think that was probably a mistake in retrospect because, you know, you get intimidated by it and you start to think of Batman as sort of some a way to make your audience happy, a way to sort of like, oh, they, this is what they respond to and they don't respond to that. And oh, here, and you, you start to see a story of like, oh, there must be a formula for writing this character. And if I can just hit all those beats, I'll be okay. And so when you start out, you start writing the formula. And that that seemed to me, in retrospect, was 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 a failure. I mean, I, I'm proud of my first arc and my first issue, but I think I'm, I'm trying to harden it. I'm trying to reach someone, to reach an audience rather than reach myself, which is kind of an arrogant way to say it. Because mm-hmm. what, what eventually you find out in comics or in any medium is, is the only thing unique you can bring to a character who's been around for 80 years is yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's the only thing different between me writing it and someone else writing is I'm me on a tautology level. <laughs> and... When I first, so to get into the character, what I had to do was connect with him. And I wasn't connecting with him. I was just sort of trying to make my audience happy. And eventually when I could connect with him and sort of see in him what's interesting about him, what makes him special, that's when I started writing it well, I think. When you're coming up with a new storyline, a new script, when when you're starting out an arc with with Batman or uh, um, beginning to to put pen to paper, uh, as it were, with with a new issue, what are the first steps? How do you get started? I work a little weird. I don't know if I'm typical of a lot of writers. A, a lot of writers use outlines. Um, they have sort of big detailed outlines. I I don't believe in outlines. I don't believe in, I believe in sort of outlining it in my head. And I think sort of what I forget wasn't worth remembering. I don't know if that's a good philosophy, but it's sort of the <laughs> philosophy I stick to. Uh, if I have an idea in the middle of the night, I'll say, oh, that's a good idea. And I'll go back to sleep. I'll never write it down. It's like, if it's a good enough idea, it'll survive to the next day. Writers who hear that, they think I'm insane. <laughs> But but the way I approach Batman is usually usually you start Batman's rarely just one issue at a time, although sometimes it is that. So usually you're thinking, okay, this is a five or six issue story you're telling, which is I mean, with, <laughs> comics are funny this way. You should back up because there's a there's a macro level to them. What you're writing is an eighty. You're contributing to an eighty year story, right? Mm-hmm. You're trying to push it back. Mm-hmm. So on one level, there's an eighty year story going on. On another level, there's your story. There's how long you're going to be on it, and you want that to sort of be a complete arc. So you're contributing to that. Then you go in closer, and then you're within those arcs. There's smaller arcs. There's sort of like small novels that might mm-hmm. contain. If you think of like a, the difference between Game of Thrones and a single and a single book, mm-hmm. and then in, in that you're writing it issue by issue, and that's just chapter by chapter. So mm-hmm. you, you you kind you kind of you pin down where where you sort of are within that macro context. Mm-hmm. So we start with you know I, I think okay I've, I have. How long I'm gonna be on Batman? I want to be on Batman for a hundred issues. What transition do I want Bruce Wayne to make? Because you know. All stories are just stories of a character changing, basically. Uh, where do I want him to be at the end? Where is he at the beginning? Where is he at the middle? This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. You talk about thinking about how the character is going to change, um, you know, but, but you also talk about the 80-year history. And this is a character who does change all the time, but but for whom change is always going to involve this sort of regression back to a... <laughs> A mean or something like that. Uh, Umberto Eco wrote this this famous essay about Superman, who's a similarly kind of complex and overdetermined history, 
uh, called The Myth of Superman, where he says that Superman stories, and this isn't quite true anymore, but operate in an oneric climate, a sort of dream space where what comes before one one set of stories and what comes after are are there, but kind of hazy in in the yeah. context of any given story. Um, do you feel like you can really contribute to this character who has such a, a, a dense history that you can actually actually change things about <laughs> about him or about the way we see him? Absolutely not. No, <laughs> I, I think that the best lesson to learn in, in comics and probably any serialized medium is that the next guy who's good is going to erase everything you did and start over and don't be sad about it. Mm-hmm. Um, that was an old lesson from my CIA days. You'd plan an operation and eventually you'd have to leave the operation and you just have to say goodbye. You know, yeah. like the person who followed it up would not be would not handle the situation the same way you would handle it. And to be frustrated about that is to sort of yell at the wind. No one mm-hmm. cares. It's kind of terrifying that the same lessons apply to the CIA <laughs> operations in comics, I, I confess. Uh, but, but but that's kind of the magic of it. You, I mean, the, the, the way is not to be frustrated about it, but to embrace it. Mm-hmm. In, in that Batman is a waiting for Godot story. It's, it, it's a story about nothing happening while preparing for something to happen. Hmm. And that's what makes it deep because, I mean, I, I said that before where all stories are about change. And, you know, we're all trying to rewrite the, the odyssey of someone going on a journey and sort of learning them about something about themselves. But that's not what real life is like, I don't think. Real life is much weirder than that. Like you think you change and then you revert and then you go back and then you come back. And, and uh, those kind of stories, the stories you see in, in – in movies all the time where someone is this way in the first act and is this way in the second act and this way in the third act and they've changed. That's not anything like reality. Hmm. And in comics, as stupid as it is and kid-like it is, that's actually more true to reality in hmm. terms of, you know, um, that life is a series of adventures and you don't always learn anything from them and that, and that you, you, you revert back to yourself at some point. And so that metaphor, I, I sort of embrace that. Hmm. Well, let's talk about, maybe we can get specific and talk about a specific Example of change that that you're bringing or appearing to be bringing to to the character and his world, just that in issue 24 of your run on Batman, so a year into your time writing it, I think uh, Batman proposes to Catwoman. Yeah. Um, how does I mean that's not just an emotional change. <laughs> it's also I mean we, it's also a pretty emotionally raw issue. Bruce Wayne talking about failing to be happy about his fear. Um, but uh, but then it's also this big character moment that we get at the end um, that potentially affects all kinds of things throughout the DC Comics. You know, Harry would say a nerd thing, which is that DC Comics is DC Comics Comics, or Detective Comics Comics. <laughs> it is Detective Comics Comics. Because it's named for for the book in which Batman first appeared, actually, Detective <laughs> Comics in the, in the 30s. Um, but in any case... Um, when you set out to tell a story like that one, one where Batman is going to propose in the splash page at the end of this issue uh, to this other character, um, how does that come about? Uh, not just like how does the idea come about, but also how do you, do you have to get approval to do something like that? <laughs> yes, you have to get a lot of approvals to do something like that. Uh, and it goes beyond – I mean, Batman's a character, again, who doesn't live just in the comic books. He lives in the movies. He lives in the TV shows. A literal billion-dollar property. Yeah, he's a, yeah, he's a, he's a billion-dollar property, and he's, he's, he's the face of a corporation. You know, he's the face of Warner Brothers, basically. So, yes, so I have to get approvals from my bosses. I have to get approvals from their bosses. who have to get approvals from who knows whose bosses. It probably goes back to the CIA guys. <laughs> uh, but, yes, uh, so when you pr- propose something like a proposal, uh, it, it's, it's kind of a big deal and, and – uh, but you can tell them like if I do this right, like here's the implications, and and here's here's 
I mean, as, as a writer, you're always like, no, here's why it matters. Here's why it is this. But of course, you have to put on your other hand and be like, here's why we can sell a bunch of stuff and you can make a bunch of money. Because mm-hmm. I, I mean, I work in commercial fiction and I'm proud of that. Like the point is to sell comics mm-hmm. and, and also to distract people from their lives. The point is not always to say the deepest thing uh, or the most artistic thing. And uh, so, so I could be like, okay, look, this is a moment we're building to and it'll work organically. And also this is going to get a lot of attention and it's going to move the book forward. Because if it is just the same story over and over again, people uh, get bored. I mean, uh, writing anything, it's just like jazz, right? Like if you, if you know jazz, you know, there's, there's, the, there's the standard, you know, that Berlin wrote, uh, whatever, uh, 70 years ago. And then what you do is you take that standard, you play it once, and then, and then you come off it, right? You come off it, you, you, and, and, that, and that makes you uncomfortable because you're kind of like, oh, I miss my standard. That's great, but I miss, this is beautiful. But I'm, and then you come back to the standard, like, oh, I feel at peace again. And then you come away from it. You're like, oh, and, and, and that's how you, you build tension and create release. And, and that's mm-hmm. what fiction is, basically. It's the building of tension. And, 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 and the, the, the frustration of building tension and the high you get from the release, the mm-hmm. dose or dopamine hit you get from that. Yeah. So it's like, okay, here's a moment where I can build some tension. Mm-hmm. I can get away from sort of our base level. That that proposal actually still has not been resolved. I think, in the, in, <laughs> at least in the comics that have come out. No, I live in a to-be-continued medium. <laughs> so yeah, uh, at the end of twenty-four, he gets down and says, uh, "Will you?" He didn't say, "Will you?" He says, "Marry me." It was a big decision on what he was going to say, and Catwoman doesn't respond, and then we we don't we don't resolve it for. Uh, and eight more issues, right? Because for the next eight issues, you're flashing back to this story yeah. from his past that you had That's referred right. to in earlier issues. Um, so there's another, you have to get all these approvals to tell a big story like that one, to have a big moment like that. Um, but that issue is also surprisingly meditative um, and raw, as I, as I think I said earlier. Um, it's also relatively short on action. I mean, this is I, like, I don't think anyone gets punched out in that issue. No. Uh, a lot of it is just a, a conversation between between Batman and this character that, that you invented, I think, Gotham Girl. Uh, about whether or not she's going to try to become a superhero, um, and and what path she'll take as she as she goes down that road, um, and then there are these scenes of of Batman and and Catwoman gallivanting across the rooftops and jumping off of buildings and things like you know, like this. Um, do you also have to get approval to tell a, a quieter story, a quieter issue like that one? Is there any expectation that, that the Joker is going to get punched out in every issue? <laughs> I used to. Uh, I'm, I'm in a better position now. Once you sort of prove yourself and so you can do quiet stuff and and show you know how to get a, get away from the quiet and do the punching again, now, now they trust me a little bit more. But yeah, that I was actually it was actually problematic when I first proposed the issue because – I, I, w- I was working with an artist, David Finch, and uh, later we brought in uh, an artist called Clay Mann to help. And David Finch is a big—he's a, he's a big punch artist. Like he's famous for big for sort of big punch books. And I I was very hesitant with, with and I'd, I'd written a draft of the script which had sort of a lot of punching in it, and then you know, sort of all the <laughs> deep dialogue went over the punching. And my editor was like, I don't know, you know, it seems like this could just be the two of them talking. And I was like, well, David's going to kill me. He's going to reach out of the phone and just strangle me because he doesn't want to draw two people just looking at each other. Uh-huh. Uh, there was a, I, I worked with an artist named Tom Fowler, who's sort of the first artist I ever worked with. And he was very stringent, a great guy, and taught me how. But he had, a, he had a coffee break rule. He's like, if two characters are talking for more than two panels, one of them has to get up and get coffee. Like, you can't just do talking, talking, mm-hmm. talking. You have I – mean, um, character is action. You have to get these people moving. And, and 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 we had just come off this arc, this arc where I basically it was a punching arc, you know, it was basically Batman punching Bane for five issues, and sort of my editor's like, he's been punching for five issues, he can take one <laughs> issue off, he'll be all right. Uh, I was, 
and uh, and so I, I said okay, and then I, I wrote the issue with with no punching, and I know it's and it's sort of it was more powerful that way. I think I think it was good. It was sort of how Batman transitions from this quiet moment where he's talking to a uh, someone who's trying to be a superhero and teaching them what it means to be a superhero, and into him sort of trying to find happiness through this proposal. Yeah. So what I'm, I'm getting the sense. Uh, and we haven't really talked much about the collaborative process of comics, the way that you – or of, of superhero comics at least, where the, the ways that you're interacting with a lot of different creative people in order to bring a single issue together. Get to that in a minute I hope. But before we do, curious about like the time that you actually spend writing the script, which is probably – I mean uh, – <laughs> You, you said that you, you wrote your, your first novel between 12 and 3 in the morning, which is terrifying to me. <laughs> and, and I'm well, glad that you're healthy and alive now. <laughs> my kids would nap. So you just had sure. a nap when the kids napped. So you try to get them, get, get the sleep back. Oh, was it 12 and 3 in the afternoon? No, it's 12 and 3 at night. But then when the kids nap during the day, you try to let like, oh, okay. you, know, you get in a few moments a few there. Moments, gotcha. yeah, you gotta, so you add up the sleep to, yeah. get, <laughs> to get them some sand. And deny yourself the sleep apparently. But um, are you still writing between 12 and 3 in the morning? <laughs> no. Is that, a, is that an entrenched no. habit now? No, thank goodness, no. So what is your day like? What, what's it like? I mean, when, when do you sit down in the morning to write? Do you, sure. do you have a schedule? Ish. I mean, I have, I have three kids and, and a working wife. Uh, so, the, I mean, I have a schedule, but it never works. So, uh, so it, my, my line I use is it takes me five days to write a script. It takes me three days to write a script. But it takes me five days to find three days. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I take care. So I have a, I have a little one who's three. And I have an older that are seven and eight. It's boy, girl, boy. And I, I, I take care of the little one until the nanny gets there around 11. So mm-hmm. I have him for like an hour or two in the morning, which is like the best time. Mm-hmm. If you see me feel sentimental about it, we're just about to lose. <laughs> He's going to have to preschool. It's killing me. Oh. They sort of had these like two hours in the morning every morning. And um, then I go up to work. Uh, and then, of course, there's emails and there's this and there's Twitter and you know, being a creator in the modern age means you're constantly getting feedback 24-7. And do you react to that? Do you not? And mm-hmm. the whole thing. And We actually first interacted on Twitter. That's talking right. Talking about how good Vision was, I think. <laughs> that's right. And so you get distracted by that stuff. And my basic process is on a first day, I try to write five pages. I, I think when you're writing, the, the you have to be forgiving of your own self. So when you say pages, write five pages, you mean... Script, script five, out five pages yeah, of the comic five itself. Pages, yeah. So what it happens, I do, I do my, my deadlines are always Friday. So I start Monday and Friday. Uh, it's like a normal work week. And, uh, and is it, this in, do you have a home office that you're working at? Yeah, I have, a home, I have a home office. It looks very nerdy. It looks out. I, I work on, on Capitol Hill in DC. I have my little dog, uh, Roxy on the floor, yelling at me to take her <laughs> out all day long. Uh, and I, on a computer, I, I, I'd use Word program I've used it since I was in high school. And um, so I so what, what I do is basically over the weekend, the weekend before, I'll know what, what issue I have to write next, whether it's a Batman or I'm working on Mr. Miracle now. And over the weekend while I'm driving or taking care of the kids or doing something, I'm daydreaming. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of what this issue could be. And I'm basically looking for a way to organize it. Like in Batman 24, if you look at that specific issue, I organized it by there's t- essentially two scenes that happen simultaneously. And there's one scene where he's talking to the um, – Gotham, this this girl who's about to be a superhero, and there's one scene that happens in the future where he's uh, with Catwoman, and they're sort of having a just having fun going through the city. 
And so once, once I get sort of an organizing principle and I can sort of see it, and hopefully I'm there by Monday. If I'm not, then I spend Monday looking for that principle. Then I write the first five pages on the first day, the first five script pages. And that can be really easy. I mean, some, some script pages are hard to write. Some are easy. Sometimes you can just write like double page splash. What that means is, is it's two pages put together, one big picture on it. Mm-hmm. Um, for people who don't know how comic books work, and who knows how comic books work, people working comics don't know how comics work. It's it's not like screenwriting where there's a set sort of here's how to write a screenplay. And anyone who gets a screenplay will know if you know the rules or not sort of. Um, and they're like, oh, you, you're a professional. You're not. You can tell instantly with a screenplay. Uh, or a novel, which I've, I have written where it's just like everyone knows what a novel looks like. A script is basically a letter you're writing to your artist. Mm. Uh, so and it's, and it's like this is a comic book I want you to draw. And it's a, le- and it's a long letter. And it has to go through an editor so he has to understand it too. And so that can be anything like there's a thing famously called the Marvel method that Stanley used to use with Jack Kirby where he would like not even write a letter. He would just call Jack on the phone and be like, Jack, I want something with a big godlike character and he's taking over the world. And that's how Kirby draws Galactus and Silver Surfer. You know? And then Lee would just go on sometimes yeah. just write the, write the actual <laughs> that's right. dialogue in yes. and then depending t- on what, what Kirby had created. Yeah, and it, it seems so bizarre, but this is actual how, mo- how a, a, like 30% of comics get written is, is – especially back in the day, is, is that just some random plot stuff like that. Uh, or, or, or the plot could be thicker where it's just like two pages of here's what happens in the issue. And then an artist will draw it without any words on the page. So it makes no sense. It makes an only sense to the artist. Mm-hmm. And then he'll turn in the he'll turn in the pictures and then the writer will write words on them. It's like Mad Libs or it's something. It's like Mad Libs. Yeah. And, and if writers and artists are talking, the artist can be like, this is what I intended to do here. And this is, but if they're not, like back in the day, Stan Lee and Steve Dicto didn't talk to each other when they were doing Spider-Man. So Stan Lee would get these things and he'd have no idea what they meant. <laughs> and he would literally just have to like, guess what, he, what, what Steve meant. You know, there might be like some notes in the margins. But that's not how you work. Uh, that's not how I work. I work for something called a full script, which is where I like each each panel, basically every page has a certain number of panels on it. I decide how many panels. And I do panel one, a small description, and then what the person says. And panel two, a small description, and then what the person says. Mm-hmm. And again, But again, it, it, it's tailored to the artist. If I know what artist I'm writing, I know, okay, this person needs this much guidance. This person needs this much guidance. Uh, I, you know, I, I did something. I did a project called Omega Men which was with an artist who had sort of never worked. He was an Indonesian artist. He'd never worked in comics before. And I sort of didn't know his strengths. I, to this day, I've never talked to him because he worked through an agent. Hmm. So I would do the layouts for him. I'd be like, okay, you're writing this in this panel, this in this panel, and this is, this is exactly how the page is laid out. Uh, and so that's as, that's as strict as you can get. But if you do that to a, to a sort of experienced artist, they'll punch you in the face. They'll be like, hmm. I know how to do my damn job, basically. Mm-hmm. So, so you, you, you sort of say, okay, you lay out the page how you want. You decide which panels go where, which go where. And I'll and I'll just say what goes in each panel. You decide which one's big, which one's small. So you're not necessarily dictating the exact details of a page layout. Like if the panels are going to fan out in some way or something like this on the finished page, you're not you're not calling for that. Uh, those those sort of design details. You can. I mean, it, it, everything in comics is it depends. Again, it's a letter to your artist. If you trust your artist, if you're like, I work with a guy named Mikkel on Batman, and I I know like I write comics up and down, which means sort of when I think of comics, I think of them as you read from top to bottom. Uh, and, and, and he thinks of comics as left to right, which is sort of like he thinks of comics as a horizontal medium. I think of it as a vertical, vertical meaning, if I got those right. 
And but I trust him, so I'll just like I'll 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 do two different pages, and he'll merge the pages, and I know he's gonna do it. Uh-huh. And I'll just say, Mikkel, do your thing, yeah. like that kind of thing, where I won't tell him like, okay, you know, do this fancy, do this. I'll just be like, Mikkel, do something designy here, or something as simple as that. But that comes of having a relationship with that an comes artist, of having a relationship. and presumably knowing their work. Do you, do you right. study an artist's work before you start to work with them if it's a new person? Oh, absolutely, yeah. And, and the key is, I mean, you want an artist to be excited about what they're drawing. Like that's the key to everything in success in comics. You want an artist to be as engaged with the work as you are. So, for example, I worked with an artist named Jay Fabok on, on Batman for a little while, and we had some pages to do. And it, was, it was kind of just empty. It was, again, a, like a page that needed just good visuals, but I didn't really have a great idea for it. And I know Jay is a Canadian. He's a big hockey fan. I know it's probably he's the first Canadian hockey fan. But And so I, I, I had done research, and he had done on his Facebook page, he'd done up like the hockey universe for, for, for Gotham. Hmm. Uh, city and I was, I was like, oh well, let's put those in a comic. And so Jay got excited because he got to put his Gotham uniforms and draw mm-hmm. hockey for a little while. Uh-huh. So you, you use tricks like that and sort of see what your what your that, that's the best place to be in a writer. As a writer, you want to be in a box. Like put me in a box and let me solve a puzzle. Mm-hmm. Writing is solving a puzzle on some level. So you say to your artist, what do you want to draw? What don't you want to draw? Mm-hmm. Uh, one time I, I was working with an artist on Batman, and they said they didn't want to draw cityscapes or action. <laughs> that was the one time I was like, I was like, oh, I don't think this is going to work out between the two of us because I think Batman is pretty much all cityscapes and action. That's basically every issue. Yeah. When you're grappling with this huge history of Batman, um, is there like a mythologist or a, to use a, the comic term, a continuity person that you have to consult with to make sure that that things line up, that, that you're... Uh, um, not contradicting some some important story that came before or something like this, or or do you just have to like wing it and hope that someone will catch it if if you get something wrong? It's 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 an odd comment. It's, it's funny you ask me that because I used to be that person when I was an intern at Marvel when I was twenty years old. I was the sort of continuity person who <laughs> read all the comics and said, "Oh, this doesn't match with that." Like I had to have some deep nerd to do that. Yeah. But the the, the way it works now. I actually, uh, there's a there's a podcast called Gotham by Geeks, and it's like um, Chris Campbell and Daryl Taylor, my, one of my two best friends, and they're super nerds. And they've read every single Batman comic, and so I, I, I literally will go on um, Messenger with them, and I'll be like, "Here's an idea I have. Has this been done before?" And they'll be like, "Well, in Batman 141, <laughs> and one for this, does this contradict something?" So, so I, I use outside sources so that when I've turned in my script, I've sort of already g- gone through people who I think are probably better than the guys who, who are internal in DC have, and then. Then DC have to coordinate it because, of course, Batman is one comic book, but there's also Batman. Ex- you know, he he exists in multiple teams, right? Like, there's a Batman in the Justice League comic book, and there's a Batman in the Detective Comics comic book, and there's a Batman in the Birds of Prey, and so all those people are this are technically the same Batman because when you're writing a comic book, what you're doing is you're just creating a window into a world, right? And they have to make sure all the windows are looking into the same world. So then that has to be coordinated by the editorial staff. I mean, related question. What happened, you know, how involved are you when there's like a crossover between books or something like this? Do you, do other writers consult with you if they're bringing Batman into their book or do they just get to do Batman their way? I, I don't, I, I, I sort of have a philosophy that I don't want to ever get another writer's way mm-hmm. having, so, so if, if, if anyone says to me, Tom, can I do this with Batman? I almost, I think I always say yes and let the editors sort of sort it out. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I was like, I'll worry about the Batman in my books. You worry about the Batman in your books. And then the editors will have the conniptions. No, that doesn't add up. That doesn't add this. I, uh, let the editors do it. I, I, writers have enough problems without me sort of editing them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you also, though, occasionally have to deal with kind of company-wide crossovers where you have to fit your story into this larger story that's being told about Watchmen or something like this yeah. being introduced into the DC universe. Is that uh, – 
do you feel like you have to seed control in those moments? Is that frustrating when, when you're writing those kind of issues? No, absolutely. I mean, the the way comics work to 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 the the audience is the way they seem real, and it seems it seems so weird to say this, and, and I don't know if people understand this. Maybe you'll understand this from watching the movies. Is they seem real because a comic book like Batman will have an impact on another comic book five years from now, or another comic book a month from now. Like 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 there are consequences to the actions, mm. so, so that when I say um, Batman gets. The Catwoman proposes to Batman. Batman has this emotional moment that might have an impact beyond sort of my book, and so then it has to sort of be one story, and that's something we call continuity. I mean, we have this now in the movies. The movies are are ceilings, but it would it would be sort of weird if you know um, a, a Tony Stark was played by a different actor in the Spider Man movie <laughs> than he is in the Iron Man movie. Now everyone sees how that weird that is. But growing up, that's 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 what all you were making fun of us for being nerds about. Oh, they yeah. doesn't add up. Um, I, I have never used that voice to describe anyone. <laughs> I use it all the time. Uh, <laughs> And so, but but to me, like like th- that's a joy. Like that's that's part of that makes the comic books have high stakes. That's why people read it. Like if you're writing, you want people to have um, care about your characters and think they're as real as you could make them. Um, you you don't want to be writing. I mean, you don't want them to perceive your book as sort of fan fiction as as as, as something that you're just doing to entertain yourself. You're doing something to entertain an audience to connect mm-hmm. with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, although fan fan fiction now has gotten so evolved that now that it does that too, uh, so so the continuity is is the thing that that sort of separates you from playing by yourself to you playing with to, to being meaningful. So that when someone dies, it means something. You know, yeah. it would be stupid if if in one Game of Thrones episode Jon Snow died, and then the next one some different writer wrote it, and Jon Snow was uh, was awake again. You'd be like, I'm never watching Game of Thrones again. <laughs> it's useless to me. Yeah. There'd be no stakes in the show. Death will mean, be meaningless. Yeah, although. Death is often meaningless in comics, in superhero comics. <laughs> yes, that's true. So you have to find something. So the tough part is finding something that's more meaningful in death. And so that's what Batman is. We're finding love. Like a, That's like the one thing that might do it. I like that. Um, do you ever provide uh, refer- visual references for people? I mean, you say that they're short descriptions. But if, if you have something really clearly in mind that you want to see on the page, how do you convey that to the artist? Oh, absolutely. All the time where I'll do... If you look in Batman 24 that we're talking about, the first or the second page is a big splash page where uh, it's like a vertigo shot of Batman sitting on top of a big building looking down. I knew I was writing these boring talking pages where it would mm-hmm. just be Batman and this um, and this girl talking for a long time. So I was like, I have to at least set it someplace interesting so there's something visual to look at. So when I think interesting, I think hot, way high up. So I was like, I want this. Because <laughs> Batman's not afraid of, of, of heights like like most people. So I was like, he's just going to have a conversation. He'll have it on the top of a needle of a building. So I went and looked at all those. You know, you watch those videos on, on Facebook where, where people are walking on top of these buildings. And it just makes your stomach fall out, mm-hmm. basically. And I was like, what if we did that? Like, what if Batman was just wandering around on top of one of those buildings in the way? Because at least it'll be visually interesting. Then at least, you know, you're staring at it and your stomach's falling out. So I took some of those. I went on the internets, if you've heard of those. And I got some pictures. <laughs> I have. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I, I send them to my artist. And I say I want to do it sort of this style where you sort of get this vertigo. So if you see in that first shot, you know it's 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 right from a shot I took off the internet. Do you do you draw yourself? I mean, are you a visually minded person in that way? No, I can't. I, I'm one of the few comic artists, the comic writers who don't draw, which is disappointing to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I even even like the, the classic uh, writers like Alan Moore and uh, um, Grant Morris and those guys have some skills and, and sort of started as artists. I have none. I can't draw anything. <laughs> I can't draw a bat. I, I practice and practice just so I could draw a bat signal because people come up to you as cons like, can you do me a sketch? And then I was like, yeah, I guess so you want to draw something. So I drew a bat signal, which is just like five lines and I couldn't do it. <laughs> it's just, it looks, <laughs> I, yeah, no, I, I can't do a single 
having an ARP to me, it's just like having a superpower. I don't understand how they do it. I feel bad that I add. It's a lot harder to be an artist than a writer. I'll, I'll say something in a script like, uh, um, for issue five of Batman, I had this, this superhero called Gotham Girl and she's hovering over an entire house. I was like, Gotham Girl hovering over the in, entire landscape of Gotham City, knowing he'd have to draw 50 buildings. <laughs> and it takes me 30 seconds to write that. It takes an artist a week to draw it. Yeah. Some of the notes in your scripts, I mean, you, your descriptions are, you said, short. That's like a sentence normally, right? Yeah, just like a sentence terse, yeah. Yeah. Um, and having looked at one of your scripts, having looked at the script <laughs> for, for issue 24, I, I was struck by these kind of occasional references in your notes to the artist's about kind of what we might consider sort of intangible details. You write at one point uh, of Batman, he's trying to be brave. Um, <laughs> when you write something like that, do you have in your head a sense of what that's going to look like when they bring it into the world? Or are you just making a leap of faith? <laughs> no. I, my, my, I don't know, as, as arrogant to say, but like, my, my gift or, or, or what, what I do well is I, I've read so many stupid comic books and I love the medium so much. And I've dedicated my life to it at this point. I, when I'm writing, I can see the comic in my head, mm-hmm. and I can see usually ninety percent. I can see what artist I'm drawing for, and I can see pretty much how they draw it. And I'm usually right when it comes down to it. And mm-hmm. sometimes I'm the great artist will surprise me and sort of exceed my expectations. And and that's just um, that's just practice. Yeah. What I, what I do, what I think of a script is, is I, I close my eyes and I think of the best comic I can be to get this idea across. And then I sort of describe what I see in my head. Mm-hmm. So when I say something like, you know, Batman trying to be brave, I'm, I'm just trying to, de- I, I see his expression in my, in my head. And I was like, how do I describe that expression? Mm-hmm. You know, I can't say, oh, his, his, uh, half his lip is moved a little bit, you know, at 45 degrees angle this way. Like that doesn't make sense to me to say like something like that. So I just sort of describe the emotion and hope the artist can nail it. There are comic writers throughout the, the history of superhero comics that, that did take that much more aggressive, <laughs> elaborate approach. Alan Moore, who we've mentioned a few times, is famous for having the, the first panel of Killing Joke, uh, his, his big famous Batman story, is supposedly like a page and a half long. Uh, but you're not that kind of guy. You're, you're similar. No, and I feel bad about it. Like I feel like I should be as obsessed with those kind of details. But but you know I'm I'm on even even doing terse descriptions I feel like I'm on the more strict right a, a lot of comic book writers will say things like the next two pages there's going to be a fight scene mm-hmm. uh, do what you want I'll add a dialogue mm-hmm. later that's probably the standard way to do a fight scene is just sort of to do something like that and then you skip ahead I don't I never do it that I'm always like panel one the punch goes this way panel two the kick goes that way and so so I I feel myself that I'm too strict but. I don't know. When I did my prose, I wrote in a sort of terse style, just trying to copy Hemingway like everyone does. So I think I write in a terse style when when I do panels. That makes sense. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24 7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. So you live here in Washington, D.C. Most of your collaborators do not. Um, <laughs> None of them do. Washington is a terrible town. For- why would you live here? Why would I live here? Why would anyone live here? Why do we live here? It's twice as expensive as everywhere else. And, 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 twice there, the and there are half the number of comic book artists. So, and I, you're I, surrounded by crazy <laughs> political people. That's true. Um, 
given that your collaborators are elsewhere uh, for the most part, um, how do you communicate with them? Is it over email? Are you are you getting on the phone? It's it's both. I mean, it depends on. I mean, I work with. I've, like I said, I've worked with writers who don't speak a lick of English mm-hmm. <laughs> or artists who don't speak a lick of English. So then it's a whole different story. Uh, I, I mean, so I have an, I work with Batman on with the guy David Finch. He's a Canadian. So I'll call him on the phone and, and we'll sort of talk over what do you want to draw. I work with another artist named Mikhail Yanin. He's in Spain. And we've been working together for three years. He was on Gracie with me. I don't have to call him. I, I kind of know what he likes mm-hmm. and what he doesn't like. And and so I've, I've met him in person once. He's been working together for three years. And then I worked with an artist called Mitch Garrods, uh, who we did Sheriff with, and we did um, uh, we we're doing Mr. Miracle with, which is this ambitious book I'm doing now. And we talked to each other every day through uh, uh, through direct messages on Twitter. And so it, it goes the entire gambit where where I won't talk to an uh, an artist directly for a year or two. I'll talk to an artist every day. I, you, I'm, I'm kind of scared of talking <laughs> to artists. I have an honest fear of it, like because I, you don't want to interfere in their process. Or? Yeah, and I, I kind of don't want to. It's kind of that feeling like you don't want your kids to know that Santa Claus isn't real. Spoilers. <laughs> it's like you don't want artists to see. We actually, your... we had Santa on this episode. Oh, you had Santa. Okay. Right, it was a Santa. <laughs> <laughs> so then you know. You're in the know. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's it's the feeling of like if they're reading your scripts and they're like, wow, this is really good, which hopefully, you know, they're doing. Uh-huh. You don't want them to sort of see what a jerk you are or what a <laughs> – I'm controlling all my swear words. But, like, you know, you, I'm, I'm kind of afraid they're going to meet me and be like, oh, man, that guy's not what I thought he was. He doesn't yeah. – because when you're an author, you – you kind of want people to think that you know some sort of deep secret and you're expressing it through stories. You don't mm-hmm. want people to think of you as an individual on some level. Mm-hmm. They're going to be – they're going to listen to this probably. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> they're they're going to know. They'll know. They'll know. What a crazy person. I am. And, and they all draw beautifully every single day. Each <laughs> line is perfect. Um, do you get to see the pages that they're producing as – I mean, as they produce them? Yes. They come in as – I mean, it varies from artist to artist, but, but the but the average would be like they send in once a week, two to three pages, um, <laughs> and that's just a process of getting paid. You know, they get paid yeah. by I get paid for a full script. They get paid by the pages they turn in. Mm-hmm. And I mean, part of that, I and mean, there's another process that we'll be exploring over the next few episodes there, which is that on the books you write, there's often one person who's doing the pencils, one person who's doing the inks, someone right. else puts the book in color, someone else letters the pages. Uh, do you see each step along the way uh, as it passes through the the production pipeline? Yeah, I do. I mean, comics, basically all comics have like this five-step process that people don't know. So you write it, an editor and a writer decide what the idea is going to be, and then the writer writes the script, and then an artist pencils it. Uh, I mean, it, it's changed a little bit with computers. Computers have changed everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is traditional. Uh, and an artist pencils it. It means he, he draws the lines in pencil. And then an inker, it could be the same person because some people like to ink themselves, um, inks over the lines uh, with black ink, and that adds. Even I have trouble as a non-artist describing it, but it, it adds like uh, a verve and strength to the art, mm-hmm. and it, it, a depth to it. Yeah. And a bad, and, a bad inker can ruin pencils. Right, and and two different inkers can take the same pencils and turn them into two very different things. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and and inkers and the ink is what gets printed off of. So if a penciler puts a line down and the inker doesn't put that line in, that line never got drawn. Because mm-hmm. it just won't be seen. Because it just won't fine. be seen. Or if the inker draws lines that aren't there, those are the lines that get in. So right. so di- so pencilers are always obviously very particular about what inkers use. And, and, mm-hmm. and most pencilers prefer to ink themselves, uh, which is what I have on most of my most of my books. And now... So that that's the that's the traditional way when people were drawing on big eleven by seventeen um, pieces of paper, 
Now in the modern age, the last 10 years, this, this technology is it's usually called a Cintiq, but there's sort of different, you can do it on an iPad Pro or something. And so a lot of people- A, a, ta- a tablet. A tablet space, of some sort, yeah, yeah, big tablet. And a lot of people, like I work with Mitch Garretts, uh and Jay Fabak, who I was talking about earlier, they do uh, their art on, directly on a Cintiq. And then the, the process is completely different for them. Mm-hmm. Where they're draw because they can they have an undo button you know they can <laughs> they don't, it's not just white out and they can also ink themselves f- quicker that way so a lot of people who do it digitally they call that they draw digitally on a thing and they turn it in that way uh, it's 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 a whole different process and uh, and it's sad for for us nerds because there's no actual physical copy of the art because if you if you're a big comic book fan you want to buy the original art but it doesn't exist because it's all done the, on digitally now yeah. Uh, it may be sad for the artists as well because they can't sell those pages. <laughs> right, but Batman Twenty Four particular was all is re- is really weird. It's all done on paper. Both are, there's two artists who worked on that book, uh, drawing the two halves of it: Clay Mann and David Finch. And both of them work traditionally in, in big pieces of paper, and both of them work with with inkers. Uh, and Clay, uh, Clay works with his brother Seth, and uh, and David works with Danny Mickey, who's the best inker in comics. So. It, it helps when you're doing the, the best-selling comic because you get the best right, uh, artist on mm-hmm. it. So, then, so that's the ink process. And then what happens is it's sent to the colorist, who there's, which is actually a, a dual process, where they send it to a flatter, what they call a flatter. And what that person does is they basically color the comic in like the simplest, easiest way possible. And then they send that comic. And it's like, it's like factory style. There are these flatters out there. And they send that comic back to the, to the, to the colorist, who's a professional. And it's sort of like the Photoshop genius of the comic, who mm-hmm. does all the Photoshop, does all the special effects, mm-hmm. and makes the figures look um, look brilliant and interesting. And, and in our comic, it's Jordi Belair, who's probably the best colorist in comics. She's won two to three Eisners. I think we're going to talk to her in a later episode. Yeah, she, she, she's, she's brilliant. I, I work with her as much as I possibly can. And um, and she, she she her style, and she'll tell you better than I am, but she's... She's into storytelling. A lot of a lot of her colors are sort of into renders and making things sort of as molded as possible. But she's into storytelling and sort of doling that. And I, I, I love what she does. And uh, so then she turns it, and that's sort of the. And then once that's done simultaneously, there's a process called the letters, and that's a letterer will. And our letterer on this is Clayton Close, who's the, one of the best letterers in comics. And he takes your words, takes your scripts, takes the inked pages and matches them up. So he, he, he puts the word balloons in that everyone famously put in the comic. Right. And I think this is something that, that a lot of people may, may not realize about uh, the way that, that a lot of superhero comics are made, a lot of mainstream comics are made, is that those balloons come in last. <laughs> yeah, they do. They come in last. So, And then you get you – get, and once all that's done, they, they send you the writer sort of – and you're usually in black and white because the colors usually come in last – they send you a black and white copy of okay. Here's you. You you had your script, that was your attempt to describe a comic book, and somebody drew what they thought you were thinking, and now we've matched that up together, and you have to decide if they hit it or not. And, and do they have, ever like, miss? Yeah, often. Yeah. So then you have about you have like it's a, it's you know everyone's late it's deadlines right? That's how the world works. So you have you know between four hours to twenty four hours to sort of fix everything, and. I, I, Honestly, in most of my comics, it's it's usually very smooth. It's usually just me. I'm the one missing where I'm like, oh, because comics are all about controlling time. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's, it's about uh, when you're doing panel one, panel two. You know, like how much time does the reader spend on one to spend on the other to get the right beats? You know, do you need a blank panel to here to make a joke work? Um, it's like it's like if if if, if you to- if you think of telling a stupid joke, you know, like. Um, how did the chicken cross? You know, think of one guy talking to another guy. It's like, uh, why did the chicken cross the road um, to get to the other side? Would you do that in one panel with two people talking mm-hmm. to each other? Or would you do, uh, why did the chicken cross the road and then do a little blanks? There's a little like 
the guys thinking about it. And then another panel, you know, how, how do you just control the beats of that to make mm-hmm. it as funny as possible? So that's what you're looking for. Do the beats work? Mm-hmm. Do, does your eyes, does it flow? And also you're, you're, you're seeing which words are sticking out, which ones are repetitive. Um, what you wrote that sounded stupid that now it sounds good. If it isn't working, do you talk to the artist directly? I mean, do you go to your editor? I mean, I imagine that that in some cases could be a pretty big deal, especially if the art has made it this far along in the production process by the time you're looking at it. It's rare. I mean, it, it's it's rare that I get something where I'm like, wow, this doesn't work. Sometimes it's just a storytelling thing. Like, oh man, w- we forgot to put the gun in the first act. It needs to, <laughs> it needs to go off by the third act. Yeah. We violated the rule. You know, so anti, anti, the... the <laughs> Uh, mirror universe Chekhov's yeah, gun. That's right. <laughs> so it's like, so you go back and Photoshop in the gun so, yeah. that, so that when it goes off in the third act. Uh, and th- th- that happens where just like just little storytelling beats that have to be in there. But typically you don't want to insult – you have to trust your artist and be like, okay, what were they doing? You know, what what did they see in your script that you didn't see and how did they bring it out and how can you can sort of compliment them rather than just be like, you need to redraw that like I said it. Yeah. Be like, okay, wh- how, why did you draw it this way and wh- how can I make that – better into match of my vision. Mm-hmm. Um, is there ever a time when you're like, holy shit, I wrote that? You know, like, I, 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 I helped bring this into the world. <laughs> uh, there's always a time where I'm saying, holy shit. I don't think there's a time where I, where I said, oh, man, I wrote that. <laughs> I, I mean, there are there are issues you get because then you get it. Then you eventually, a week before it comes out, they send you it in the mail. And it's the scariest moment of your life because you're like, oh, my God, what if there's a typo? What if I did something mm-hmm. stupid? What if I – and you kind of don't want to read it and you do want to read it. And sometimes you read it and you're like, oh, man. Like I just got Mr. Miracle number one. And I was just I, – I was like, oh, man, I'm so proud. Like everything is perfect. And I can't read it. I read it over and over and over again. But then I get, I'll get an issue. I did this Elmer Fudd issue, which, which was great and went over big. But I it's couldn't also read. a truly insane idea. When you say Elmer Fudd issue, just so the listener is clear, you mean Elmer Fudd fights Batman. Yeah, I did an Elmer Fudd fights <laughs> Batman issue of a comic book, uh, <laughs> which sold out. Like people loved it. Yeah. It, went, it went it went big. And, and but I got it, and there was a typo on one page, and I literally ripped it in half and threw it in the trash can, <laughs> and which was sad because then they sold out, and the, the copies were selling for fifty bucks a pop. My wife's like, well, "You threw those out?" I was like, "Well, there was a typo. <laughs> like nobody noticed." Uh, so. Sometimes I'm proud of my writing and sometimes I'm not. Yeah. One thing we haven't really talked about is your relationship with the editors that you work with um, who presumably are are looking at approving, revising the script. What are are those interactions like? (laughs) Well, it's so funny you asked me about 24 because that was a big editor fight. The 24 is our two editors listed for that book because we Mm -hmm. switched editors halfway through. Oh, wow. Is that normal? No, it's not normal. It was very weird. Uh, I got in a big fight with my editor about it. Uh, an editor I love, Mark Doyle, um, and he wanted to bring an, an, an artist on it who had not worked on the book before. Mm-hmm. And I knew it was this big moment, and it was I knew it was it was Batman proposing to Catwoman. I sort of knew it was one of those things that's gonna, you know you're going to turn on Twitter and there it's going to be the stupid image. And I was like, I want this to be an image of David who had been writing on Batman, David Finch forever. And I was like, I want him to draw this issue. And like, no, 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 David's too busy. He's going on vacation. I was like, just call him. You know, let's do. Mm-hmm. And uh, and we got in a big fight over it, and in the end, we had we we switched editors to, and 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 got David, mm-hmm. and that's how we brought in Jamie Rich on the book. And uh, I don't know who was right, who was wrong. I mean, I think David was right to draw the draw the issue, but <laughs> but that, that's something I could not do earlier in my career, where you could say like I'm putting my foot down. Uh-huh. Like that's something you can only say when you've had a, a lot of success. Do you have m- much say in other contexts now about which artist you're going to work with on a given book? Uh, um, 
yes, I, I, I do now. Like when you, this is how comics work. When you first come in, you have no power at all. You, you, you're just you're, 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 you're at the whim of your editor because your editor controls whether you eat that day. Mm-hmm. And you have to try to fight as hard as you can for sort of the creative decisions because you're in this box. And a lot of people find themselves in this box where you're like, if I write this bad thing that I've been told to write, my career won't go forward. Mm-hmm. But if I argue, then the editor will hate me and my career won't go forward. Mm-hmm. So you're sort of, you're constantly dealing with that pressure. And got, and I've been lucky in my career to have worked with editors like Mark Doyle and, and, and like Jamie Rich, who, who sort of are willing to take feedback, but there are editors who won't take feedback mm-hmm. or you know editors who have bad opinions on things. And then you get to a sort of an even ground where the two of you can have a conversation where you can be like, okay, I don't like this, I don't like that, but eventually they, and then you, you get you get to another level where, where they trust you, where there's actual trust in you um, because you've had some successes. And I'm, I'm fortunate enough, Lord knows a year from now I'll fall off and won't be in that position. But right now at least I'm, I'm fortunate at the point where, where, where the editors do trust me enough to be like, okay, Tom's opinion. But I, um, you once you have that trust, it's freaking, it's sacred. Like you can't violate it. It's almost bigger pressure. So you don't want to, then, then the, the the pressure has to be on you to make it as good as possible because now the comic book relies on your on what you can do. When you get notes from an editor, what what shape does that take? Are they sending you a page of comments, or are they just like marking things up and track changes in Word? Uh, <laughs> no, I, I I hate track changes. It's awful. <laughs> I hate seeing that big red line. Yeah. Uh, it, I have a, I have a great relationship with my. With my editors, so base it. I like my I like my notes over phone. That's how I like my mm-hmm. notes, where they sort of call me and they say, "Okay, let's go through this and do this." And well, basically, if, if I turn in a script and it's terrible, that's why I want the editors to be like, because it happens to me. It happens to me with Batman uh, twenty eight or twenty nine, which is about to come out. I turned in a script and I was like, "That's pretty good. It's not my best, but it's good." And my editor contacted me and they're like, "Here's thirty notes." And I was like, "Oh, this is just a terrible script." And I threw it out and started over. So I have to my you have to have trust in your editors to be able to do that. Um, but 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 if you turn in a script and it's good, then the editor will call you and be like, okay, can you adjust this? Can you adjust that? And it's, it's usually one or two drafts. I mean, I've been on things where it's seven drafts and you're just like, you both want to kill each other by the end where you just can't get it right between mm-hmm. the two of you. And then I think it's almost like you just, like you've hired the wrong person for this job. Mm-hmm. Like I'm clearly, we're not seeing eye to eye on this if, if, it, if it's going to set draft seven. I imagine that must be scary though. <laughs> maybe maybe not at this yes, point in your no. career. But. It's utterly frightening. It's 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 uh uh yeah. It, if I get if I get something backwards, there's just like tons of notes. I'll be like, okay, I just need to start over. Mm-hmm. If, if 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 at this point in my career I'm writing something that's just that, that needs a bunch of notes, then the problem is me, mm-hmm. and 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 I'm better to start over. Um, I, I, but but there have been points in my career where just like, okay, here let's let's nitpick this and nitpick that and nitpick that. And and as as a writer, it drives you insane. Yeah. One question I'm I'm left with after all this is is how you find balance. It takes you most of a week, working week, to to do a given script. You're turning in two Batman scripts a month, usually. Yeah. Um, because there are going to be two issues a month. Um, you also, though, write these other books. You're writing Mr. Miracle now. Uh, is is Sheriff of Babylon ongoing at this point? It is, but it's on pause right now. Okay, but you've got a lot going on, yeah. a lot of stuff that you're juggling. How do you find balance between those different uh, professional activities that you're engaged in? It's a script a week, basically. So I try it in four weeks in a month. And then there are months, there are weeks you're going to end up missing. So I have about three scripts. Of, um, I intend every week to get a script done. And if I miss one, then I sort of have, a, and I was like, okay, I actually only have three scripts to do this week. So mm-hmm. I always plan on writing one script per week. Mm-hmm. 
And the tough thing is with, with a double ship book, which is what they call Batman, where it comes out, books have always come out monthly. This is something new, or it comes out bi-weekly. We're trying to get, catch it a TV, it comes out weekly, you're mm-hmm. binge watching, God forbid. <laughs> and um, with that, I have to write for two artists at the same time. I'm writing two stories at the same time because the artist, it takes an artist uh, a long time to draw a comic book. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it takes more than a month, basically, if you think mm-hmm. of the math. It takes them about six weeks to draw a comic book. So you have to write two arcs at the same time. So that's mm-hmm. that's the tough part, sort of separating them in your head. So you're actually working well in advance of, of the publication dates in that way. It's not <laughs> yeah. it's a deadline game, but maybe not like a, a you know, do or die moment, up to the moment kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, it can go, bo- it can go both ways. You know, I, I, again, I started in novels where you write a novel and then it takes you, you know, six months to sell it and then the editor works with you for six months on it and then you have a six, you know, six months in the copy editors. And it's also like a novel takes two to three years, basically, Mm -hmm. to sort of go through its process to sort of come out to the public. Whereas a comic book is such an instant medium. That's, it's, it's, it's very improvisational where I, I, I write a comic book, it gets drawn, it takes about two months to draw colors. It gets, the whole thing takes about three months, but I'm involved in every aspect. And, you know, two weeks before it comes out, we're still like, okay, should we move that bubble? Should we move that bubble? Mm -hmm. Boom, it's done and goes out. It's a much more instantaneous medium than Mm -hmm. publishing is. And, 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 I'm doing a little television work. Then television is where you're, you know, you have 50 people involved in every single decision. Yeah. This is just, you know, this is five dude, five people in a room getting it done. So it seems to me, it seems very instantaneous. Yeah. Do you find it difficult to switch tonally between the different books that you're writing? No, uh, no. I mean, it's just it's a matter of imagination. You know, mm-hmm. um, you're a different person every. You know, you're a different person. I mean, it, I, when people ask me that question, like, do you have trouble? It's, it's like, do you have trouble? talking to your wife as opposed to your boss it's okay. like yeah. right like you 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 you're 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 switching who you are mm-hmm. throughout the day so I'm, I'm a different writer when i'm writing mr miracle as i am writing batman but it's the same as being a different person talking to someone else yeah what about the money if i can ask about that <laughs> uh do, does writing comics pay well it, <laughs> it's not it's not a medium that people get in to get rich it's a medium people uh-huh. get in to love that said, when you write Batman, which is a, a very good-selling title, uh, comics are nice and have royalty structures now. Mm. For historically, you, they didn't. Yeah, they didn't historically, yeah. And the great creators of these great works, like, you know, um, Superman had no money. Was, uh, Schuster was homeless at the end of his life, mm. basically, and had to be sort of rescued by Warner Bros. And they put him on a salary of like $30,000 a year. Here they were releasing movies, making billions of dollars. Um, but fortunately, that's... That, because of people like Neil Adams, who who worked to to get ro- comic book royalties, if you're writing a book like Batman, which sells very well, thank thank you Batman readers for that. <laughs> uh, or 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 a book like Vision, which didn't sell well in a comic book, like those little trade things, but but once it hit the book market, sold very well. Mm-hmm. Then the royalties kick in, and and you can make some decent money off of that. Yeah. Do you are you in a position to negotiate those royalties, or is it kind of standard across the industry? Every, everything's negotiable, you know. Mm-hmm. At, at the end of the day, it's a, sort of a capitalist system. But uh, I'm lucky enough. I work for DC Comics, uh, and and the head of DC Comics is Dan DeDio, and he really actually cares deeply about creators and creator rights mm-hmm. and making sure creators get their money and get paid. And and so it, I'm I'm well taken care of, and I appreciate that. So, it's crazy. It's crazy yeah. to make money off of comic books. It pays a lot more better than novels. I say that. <laughs> I I believe it. <laughs> what, and better than the CIA. Yeah, that's that's news. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
you you weren't living the James Bond life. <laughs> no, uh, no, sad. No, you're you're a public employee. You're a GS something or other. Um, what last last questions uh, here? What happens after a book comes out? Um, do you, do you have to spend much time doing promotion, supporting it? <laughs> it? It depends on the issue. When it's an issue like Batman getting engaged, yes, you you do those. You you do like like being. Being a, a, a comic book writer or or a comic book writer who's on a big book like Batman, it's it's like being like a nerd celebrity or like the mm. D minus <laughs> celebrity. So like you kind of do the same things you see real celebrities do, but on a on a weird nerdier base. Like I'll do that thing like you see those junket things where the the the, the actors getting you know NBC and CBS and all these people come in and they interview them for five minutes. I I do that, but with like comic book website A, comic book website B, comic book website C. So it's it's kind of like it's like the nerd version of celebrity. Yeah. And yeah, so so you you do that all you do that all the time, and you, you just try not to sound like an ass. Are you happy in my life? Oh in God, no, I'm a writer. <laughs> who's a who's a happy writer? Is there one out there? <laughs> Am I happy? Yes, yes, I'm happy. I have. But I'm not happy because of my comics. I'm happy because of my wife and my kids and my dog. That's what makes me happy. The comics are nice, but that's 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 the core of the thing, right? Seems like a good life. Well, thank you so much for being here with us today. This was such a delight. This is a, I'm a super slate nerd. Like I've been listening to your podcast for ten years. I just got to meet David Plotz in the hallway and try not to freak <laughs> out. He elbow bumped me. Uh, so this is this is a this is an honor. And I pre- I appreciate everything you do and everything your site does. It means a lot to things. Well I'm I'm a super comics nerd and I appreciate everything that your your books do. They mean a lot to me. I am. It's true. Thanks for listening to this episode of Working. I'm Jacob Brogan. Uh, we want to recommend that you check out uh, Slate's podcast, I Have to Ask. Each week on I Have to Ask, Slate's resident interrogator, Isaac Chotner, talks one-on-one with newsmakers, celebrities, and cultural icons to help us better understand them and our world. Uh, check out uh, especially his recent episode uh, from August 24th with Mark Lilla, uh, the author of Once and Future Liberal, uh, with whom uh, Isaac had a interestingly combative conversation. It's worth a listen. We'd also love to hear your thoughts about working. Our email address is working at slate.com. I read and try to respond to all of those messages. Uh, and I love hearing from folks, whether you have a suggestion for a future season or episode uh, or, or just thoughts about the show. You can also listen to past episodes at slate.com slash working. Uh, thanks to AC Valdez, uh, who helped us record this episode, and to all of the Slate staffers who pitched in with questions for our Slate Plus segment. This episode of Working was produced and edited by Benjamin Frisch. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.